Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're talking about a 29-year-old woman with shortness of breath and pregnancy, specifically at 32 weeks gestation, and we'll discuss some of the cardiovascular abnormalities as well as pulmonary abnormalities that can arise in this state. You can tweet at me at Kate Merriweather one K-A-T-E-M-E-R-I-W-E-T-H-E-R-1, on Twitter. So let's go ahead and start talking about our patient case. For those of you that are following at home, this is case 32 of the Obstetrics and Gynecology Morning Report book. This case was written by Andrew Murado, Raj Desgupta, and Ruth Minkin. Our patient is a 29-year-old woman with shortness of breath. She's a G1P0 at 32 weeks gestation, and she presents to the emergency room complaining of shortness of breath. So what is the differential diagnosis of shortness of breath in pregnancy? It, of course, can manifest for a lot of different reasons and involve different organ systems. Generally speaking, common etiologies are going to be cardiovascular, so things like systolic heart failure, myocardial infarction, pulmonary issues like asthma, pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, and hematopoietic systems, things like anemia. The differential diagnosis can be narrowed a little bit based on the ancillary history as well as demographics. In a young, previously healthy woman who's in her third trimester of pregnancy, a few things should sort of pop into your head. First of all, pregnancy, due to increased estrogen in the body, is a pro-coagulopathic state. Now, what does that mean? That means that you're more likely to get blood clotting issues than you are when you're in a non-pregnant state. Pregnant women have increased risk for both deep venous thrombosis, or what we call DVT, and pulmonary embolism. Overall, DVT occurs in all trimesters anapartum, or it's possible, while pulmonary embolism occurs most often when you're in the peripartum period, so right before birth or right after birth. The length of your hypocoagulability can extend beyond delivery, so keep in mind, a woman is already delivered, that doesn't mean she's out of the risk period. So venous thromboembolism, VTE, is two to five times more likely than it is when you're non-pregnant in the postpartum period. And the highest risk to you is going to be when you're in your first six weeks postpartum. Although the risk persists until 12 weeks postpartum, the absolute risk beyond six weeks is pretty low. So women that are beyond six weeks postpartum are back very near to the baseline risk. Patients may complain of unilateral lower extremity edema, as well as acute chest pain with hypoxia if they're manifesting with a deep venous thrombosis or a VTE. If these things are also in the history, of course you're going to be thinking about VTE as part of your differential. Other thing that's very important on the differential is anemia. Anemia can occur in pregnancy for a lot of different reasons. The increased plasma volume that's generated by pregnancy tends to sort of dilute your hemoglobin. With a nadir or a low point of your hemoglobin occurring in the early portion of the third trimester. So that's when women are going to be the most uh, anemic. And this woman is 32 weeks, so you're definitely thinking about that. This effect dampens as pregnancy reaches term due to minimal further expansion of the plasma volume relative to the increase in blood cells. So as you get closer to term, you are less dilutional and therefore going to return more 
towards a less uh, anemic state. Traditionally, the placenta and the developing fetus utilize large amounts of dietary iron and can further exacerbate anemia. So they're using up some of the resources that mom already has. Iron supplementation is paramount in prenatal care. So we routinely will give women iron supplementation either as part of their prenatal vitamins or in addition to their prenatal vitamins if they don't have them. Usually, the iron supplementation should exceed one gram per day to really build up the stores in the pregnant mother and ensure that she has adequate supply of iron. Another thing to think about is cardiomyopathy. Peripartum cardiomyopathy is a rare disorder that results in impairment of the left ventricular ejection fraction, or what we call the LEVF. Now, a compromised LVEF is going to be less than 45%, and you can have this with or without left ventricular dilatation in peripartum cardiomyopathy. These patients without previously known cardiovascular disease present usually near term, so after their 36 weeks of pregnancy or more, and up to six months after delivery. So again, this is something that if it presented in a postpartum patient with shortness of breath, you would have to keep it on your differential even though the baby is already delivered. The typical clinical presentation of peripartum cardiomyopathy mirrors systolic heart failure with sounds of volume or of a load, including pulmonary and lower extremity edema. Management usually is aimed at trying to get back to a normal left ventricular function, but in some instances, the condition is very irreversible and the woman might permanently have left ventricular compromise. There's even women that have to get heart transplantation after this because they have permanent compromise of their heart. The other clinical pearl that I want to stop and highlight here is something that's about progesterone. Progesterone is very high in pregnancy, as indicated by its word stem, right? Gesterone. It stimulates the respiratory center during pregnancy to increase minute ventilation. So remember that minute ventilation is respiratory rate times the tidal volume of each respiration. This is primarily achieved through an increase in tidal volume that the minute ventilation is, is going up. So respiratory rate doesn't go up very much, but tidal volume goes up a lot. Tachypnea is not an unexpected finding during pregnancy, however, so women shouldn't feel like they're extremely short of, short of breath. If the woman presents as someone who's breathing faster or feeling like they're breathing faster, really they should be investigated to find out if there's an underlying cause. Okay, so let's go back to this pregnant patient for a minute now that we're thinking about some of this differential diagnosis. So you want to ask her a little bit more history, right? The patient reports an insidious onset of her shortness of breath that has progressed over four weeks since her last visit. She admits to decreased exercise tolerance as well as new onset bilateral lower extremity edema. Hmm, this is suspicious. She has severe shortness of breath with ambulation around her home. She has no past medical or surgical history. Both her mother and her father have hypertension, but otherwise her family history is non-contributory. She is taking her prenatal vitamins as instructed and takes no other medications at this time. Five years prior, she did take herbal supplements for weight loss, which she bought online from Europe. She has no allergies to drugs, and you do the rest of her review of systems like a good emergency room physician, and it's all negative, which is fortunate. So how does heart failure, if you're thinking about this woman having a cardiac compromise, how is that going to present on physical exam? So we're going to examine our patient, right? Heart failure is a ubiquitous term meant to describe a wide array of clinical diseases. The left ventricle responsible for systemic tissue perfusion, obviously all of the rest of our body getting oxygen, can be subject to both systolic and diastolic dysfunction. 
systolic dysfunction, you remember, something that we sometimes refer to as a low ejection fraction, is most commonly caused by coronary disease and or myocardial infarction. Remember, I said that's on the differential in pregnancy. Well, diastolic dysfunction, in contrast, so that's heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, is strongly associated with long-standing, poorly controlled hypertension. Regardless of the type of heart failure that you're dealing with, the common physical exam findings when in heart failure or exacerbation are jugular venous distension, orthopnea, peripheral edema, accessory heart sounds, and inspiratory crackles. And all of those physical exam findings are going to also manifest in a pregnant patient that you're examining that has heart failure. Commonly overlooked is the right ventricular function, which plays just as important as a role as the left ventricle. So you have to think about both ventricles working together. The right ventricle delivers blood to the pulmonary arteries for subsequent offloading of carbon dioxide and uptake of oxygen from the ambient air, right? You got to get the blood to the lungs for possible gas exchange. The pulmonary circulation is a low-pressure, high-flow system. And it has a great capacity for recruitment of normally underperfused vessels. As a consequence of this, the walls of the pulmonary arteries are really thin. And that is in keeping with the fact that they have a low transmural pressure, right? This explains the discrepancy in myocardial thickness between the right and the left ventricles. So the myocardium is going to be very thin in the right ventricle, but very thick in the left ventricle because it has to pump on the left ventricle against a high-pressure system, whereas the right ventricle is pumping against a low-pressure system. If you have failure of the right ventricle, this can occur as a consequence of left ventricular disease, but isolated right ventricular dysfunction is more commonly caused by myocardial infarction involving the right coronary artery or pulmonary hypertension, which we're going to talk about a little more in a minute. Physical exam findings that you'll find with right ventricular dysfunction are increased intensity of the pulmonic component of the second heart sound with accentuated, for example, splitting, precordial heave, holosystolic murmur signaling signaling that you have tricuspid regurgitation and peripheral edema because of backup into the systemic venous system, right? Typically, the lung sounds are clear when you're dealing with right heart diastolic function. So if you're dealing with a pregnant woman that has abnormal heart sounds, but no abnormal lung sounds, definitely this should be on your differential. Clinical pearl. The most significant finding for heart failure is the presence of an S3. That's most specific. It occurs in the middle of a third of the diastole after the S2 heart sound happens due to the turbulent blood flow from the atrium to the dilated left ventricle. An S4, or a fourth heart sound, occurs after the atrial kick and just before the S1 heart sound. It results from the forceful ejection of blood from the atria into a stiffened left ventricle. So a little bit of review of the heart sounds for you. So let's go back to our patient. Now that we know that we want to physically examine her, let's do that cardiac exam for her. On exam, this patient is afebrile and she has a blood pressure of 103 over 54 millimeters mercury. Very normal. Her heart rate is a little elevated at 107 beats per minute and her respiratory rate is 22 per minute. The oxygen saturation on room air for her is 97%. She appears to be in mild respiratory distress. She has an obvious jugular venous distension up to the angle of the mandible. Her lungs are clear. She has a loud P2 with a 3 out of 6 holosystolic murmur best heard at the 5th intercostal space at the parasternal border. She has 2 plus peripheral pitting edema. 
the remainder of the physical exam is normal. Her chest radiograph, or CXR, is shown in figure 332.2. And I'm going to describe it for you because you guys are listening at home. She is admitted to the obstetrics floor for further evaluation. And you consult pulmonology from the emergency room because you're concerned. So I'm going to describe this chest x-ray to you. On first impression, you can see that there's a lot of enlarging of the pulmonary arteries and the right ventricle. So the right ventricle is really huge in this patient. The whole right heart shadow is very notable the minute you walk up to the chest x-ray. Now, the actual lung parenchyma looks normal. So there's no evidence of pulmonary edema or something else that you're concerned about a pulmonary infection or backup into the lungs. So obviously, on my differential, we're going to keep right heart dysfunction in mind because the lungs are clear on exam, the lung parenchyma looks normal on the chest x-ray, but we have a lot of engorgement of the pulmonary arteries and right ventricular enlargement of the heart with these abnormal heart sounds. So let's think about the differential now for right ventricular failure or right ventricular compromise in a pregnant woman. Remember, let's go back to our stuff about heart failure here. The right ventricle, remember, delivers blood to the pulmonary arteries. So on the differential for right heart failure is pulmonary hypertension. Now, what the heck is pulmonary hypertension? Pulmonary hypertension classification, interestingly, was restructured in the 2010s to include five classes of disease all of which are characterized by elevated pressure within the pulmonary vasculature. Just like systemic hypertension, what we kind of think of as your regular hypertension, right? There is a pressure criteria, and pulmonary hypertension is defined as a mean pulmonary arterial pressure, or what we call an MPAP, greater than 25 millimeters mercury. From there, the classes of pulmonary hypertension are sort of staggered upwards or further delineated based on the history and the hemodynamic measurements that you make. It's really important to correctly identify the type of pulmonary hypertension because the management that you're going to use is going to vary a lot between the classes of pulmonary hypertension. The most important distinction that you have to make if you're thinking about a patient with pulmonary hypertension, which we suspect our patient in this case might have, is to make the classification between disease into the precapillary or the postcapillary system. So the precapillary means that the MPAP is greater than 25 millimeters mercury. Pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, or PCWP, is less than 15 millimeters mercury. In a postcapillary deal, you've got the MPAP of greater than 25, so the criteria for pulmonary hypertension, but the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is greater than 15 millimeters mercury. So postcapillary PCWP is going to be greater than 15 millimeters mercury. The approach to the conditions between precapillary and postcapillary is going to vary significantly. So let's talk a little bit about the groups of pulmonary arterial hypertension for a minute. So group one, you've got group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, or PAH, is what we call true precapillary disease. It's defined as an MPAP greater than 25, so basically your definition for pulmonary hypertension, and a PCWP less than 15 millimeters mercury. And a pulmonary vascular resistance, or a PVR, greater than three wood units, or WUs. It includes idiopathic PAH, heritable PAH, or genetic PAH, drug and toxin-associated PAH, and PAH with an associated condition. And what do I mean by associated conditions? I mean collagen vascular disease, 
HIV infection, portal hypertension, congenital heart diseases, and schistomoniasis. Interesting infectious disease sidetrack there. The pathogenesis and the treatment of group 1 PAH is going to be discussed in a minute. I'm going to get back to that. Group 2 pulmonary venous hypertension, or PVH, post-capillary disease, is due to left ventricular heart disease that's differentiated based on pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of greater than 15 millimeters mercury. Remember how I said post-capillary disease, you've got PCWP greater than 50. As the left ventricle fails, and now, we, now we're going down a differential of what made the left ventricle fail in the first place, an increased pressure is transmitted back through the pulmonary veins to the pulmonary arteries. And over time, the elevated pressure from the left side of the heart is going to result in failure of the afterload intolerant right ventricle. Remember, the right ventricle is thin. It's not used to pumping against the high pressure system. It's used to pumping against the low pressure system, the pulmonary vasculature. This is by far the most common kind of pulmonary hypertension. And a mainstay of treatment is sort of optimizing the cardiac function and blood pressure control so that the left heart is offloaded, right? Now let's get into group three pulmonary hypertension. This is due to chronic hypoxia. And usually in this case, you've got a PCWP of less than 15 millimeters mercury. Also, you usually have a history of underlying lung disease or sleep apnea in these patients. Because our healthy pregnant patient doesn't have any past medical history, and we're going to assume for the sake of argument that she's normal weight, normal neck size, etc., it's less likely that she's dealing with an underlying lung disease or sleep apnea that we didn't know about. Chronic hypoxia leads to physiological pulmonary arterial vasoconstriction. And if there's a long period of time that this hypoxia is going on, there's a permanent remodeling at the vascular level that occurs in identifiable pulmonary hypertension. So you've got actual remodeling that's happening as a result of chronic hypoxia, and then you get this higher pressure system in the pulmonary vascular tree, which is causing right heart failure. As with the group two, which we were dealing with pulmonary venous hypertension with left heart failure, the mainstay of therapy is again, you gotta optimize lung function, uh, to offload the right heart, and you have to give some supplemental oxygen in this case to maintain adequate oxygen saturation so the vascular remodeling does not continue. Now we have group four pulmonary hypertension. This includes chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So we call that CTEPH, C T E P H, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Up to 4% of patients that are diagnosed with acute pulmonary embolism are going to develop CTEF, and this is a direct result of an unresolved thrombus that becomes sort of coalescent or stuck and organized, and it results in obstructive blood flow and increased vascular resistance. So you have increased in vascular resistance in the pulmonary tree and loading of the right heart because of this chronic clot that's in there. It's organized, it's coalescent. With time, the increased pulmonary vascular resistance results in, no surprise, right heart failure. A ventilation perfusion scam is the test of choice to sort of make this diagnosis because it's the most sensitive in detecting these organized clots. It's even more sensitive than what? The other test we commonly do for pulmonary emboli, right, which is computed tomography, CT. So a pulmonary angiogram with CT is commonly how we diagnose acute clots in the lung, right? But when we have an organized and a coalescent clot, 
we want to do a ventilation perfusion scan because we want to sort of see this chronic clot that's in there and the fact that we're getting increased vascular resistance there. So that brings us to the last group, group five. Now, this is a miscellaneous category with different causes of pulmonary hypertension. Management depends sort of on what the reason is for the pulmonary hypertension in the first place. And I'm going to refer uh, to figure 32.2, which is going to sort of do a little overview for you. So I'm going to go to this table and just sort of recap. What have we learned about group one, two, three, four, five pulmonary hypertension? So little recap. In group one, you've got primary pulmonary hypertension. It's idiopathic, it's familial, it's drug and toxin induced, like appetite suppressant drugs and rare medical conditions. Remember, our patient used an appetite suppression drug a few years back. Group two. Group two is secondary to left ventricular disease, like mitral valve disease, left ventricular systolic or diastolic failure. So the left heart has failed or is having issues in group two. Group three, it's secondary to pulmonary disease or chronic hypoxia where that vascular remodeling happens. So we're talking about women with COPD, sleep disordered breathing, obesity, hypoventilation. Okay. Group four, group four is secondary to a chronic thromboezolum. And then group five is sort of like your catch-all trash basket, right? Unclear or multifactorial ideologies. And how you're going to treat it is depend on what the heck happened in the first place. So a little pearl, a little aside here, CTEF, remember CTEF I said was chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, which is group four, is the one class of pulmonary hypertension that's primarily treated with surgery. The rest of them aren't surgical things. When there is a significant amount of proximal clot burden noted on the VQ scan, remember I said that's the most sensitive test for CTEF. Referral should be made to a center that specializes in pulmonary arterial endarterectomy, so actually being able to remove the clot surgically. In centers that have experienced, the mortality following the surgery is less than 2%, so that's pretty good. So let's take a little moment to go back. Whenever we're about to go down a rabbit hole, like pulmonary hypertension in this case, I usually like to take a moment to go back and review the cardiovascular system and sort of what is happening with physical exam findings in right and left heart failure. Because remember, we examined our patient and she had these really interesting findings, right? She had allowed P2 with a three out of six holosystolic murmur. So let's take the heart, right? We're going to break this into right heart failure and left heart failure. With right heart failure, you've got congestion of the peripheral tissues. So you have something that's happening in the pulmonary vascular tree or in the lungs itself. So what can happen with right heart failure? You can have liver congestion. And if you do have liver congestion, you're going to have signs related to impaired liver function. Also, you'll have the signs of dependent edema and ascites, right? Because if the right heart can't function, you're backing up into your systemic venous circulation. One of the other things that could go on is GI tract congestion. So you have excess blood congestion in your intestines, stomach, etc. And that can result in symptoms that the patient is reporting like anorexia, GI distress, weight loss. So these are things that you want to look for when you're reviewing uh, your systems with the patient. Let's hop over now to left heart failure. So with left heart failure, you have decreased cardiac output and you have pulmonary congestion going on at the same time. So blood isn't getting out of the pulmonary vascular tree, but blood is not getting out to the body. Because you have decreased cardiac output, you have activity intolerance and signs of decreased tissue perfusion, so signs of hypoxia. 
with the pulmonary congestion, you get impaired gas exchange. So you get cyanosis and hypoxia, right? Because you're not able to do that gas exchange at the pulmonary level. And you get pulmonary edema. So that's where you get into orthopnea, right? Not being able to lie flat without shortness of breath. And paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. Also, you have, if you go way into pulmonary congestion, you can even get cough with frothy sputum. So it doesn't look like bloody, it doesn't look infectious, but you do have a productive cough. So just a little review, since we're going to go down this pulmonary hypertension pathway to take you back to what's going on in the heart and what sort of physical signs and symptoms would lead you to believe this is right heart failure, this is left heart failure, what's going on. All right, so let's go back to pulmonary hypertension, which we're starting to really suspect that our patient has. What is the best screening test for pulmonary hypertension? The best screening test usually is a transthoracic echocardiogram, or a TTE. It's now readily available in most hospitals, thank goodness. So ultrasonography at the bedside allows for sort of a rapid, non-invasive evaluation of the heart function and anatomy. So you can actually wheel the ultrasound machine right into a patient's room in the emergency room, or in this case, on the obstetrical unit where we've evaluated the patient and look and see what the heart function and anatomy looks like. While there's lacking in specificity, the high sensitivity and the really excellent negative predictive value make TTE a great test to rule out pulmonary hypertension. Remember that if something has high specificity, it's great at ruling something in. If something has great sensitivity, like this test, it's great for ruling something out. That spin and snout acronym. So findings indicative of pulmonary hypertension are right ventricular dilation and a reduced uh, function in the right ventricle. Most importantly, the TTE can estimate the pulmonary artery systolic pressure using sort of the simplified Bernoulli's equation. Now, what in the world is going on with the Bernoulli's equation? So the simplified version is where you've got change in pressure equals four times the square of the velocity of regurgitated blood through the tricuspid valve. So P is, is pressure, and you're going to have delta pressure, change in pressure, and it's equal to four times the square of the velocity of regurgitated blood through the tricuspid valve. So if the blood is going really fast through the tricuspid valve, that's going to increase by its square and then four times the change in pressure that's going to happen. So the faster it's going, the more this change in pressure is going to manifest. So Bernoulli's equation is a property of fluid dynamics stating that an increase in speed and fluid occurs simultaneously with a decrease in pressure. In other words, the pressure gradient or the change between the right atrium and the right ventricle in this case is equal to four times the square of velocity of blood throw through the tricuspid valve. So the TTE is able to measure the velocity of the flow through the tricuspid valve. With normal anatomy, the right ventricle systolic pressure is equal to the pulmonary artery pressure, and inferences regarding the pulmonary hypertension can be made from there. Okay, so that's where we're going to go next. Little clinical pearl, I was talking about sensitive and specific tests. Remember, sensitive tests have low false negative rates, while specific tests have low false positive rates. The negative predictive value is the proportion of patients who, with a negative test, do not in fact have disease. So that's very high for a TTE in someone who, who says you don't have pulmonary hypertension on this TTE. The positive predictive value is the proportion of patients with a positive test who do in fact have disease. All right, 
So let's go back to our patient now that we know the best test to evaluate her for pulmonary hypertension, which we highly suspected. A screening TTE in this pregnant patient reveals severe right ventricular dilation, which we already saw on her chest x-ray, and a markedly reduced right ventricular function. The pulmonary artery systolic pressure is estimated at 65 millimeters mercury, so she's met that greater than 25 definition of pulmonary arterial hypertension, or PAH. The left ventricular is normal in size and function, so we're already thinking, okay, it's probably not group 2 PAH, right? Because that would be secondary to left ventricular disease, but her left ventricle looks normal. Remember, we've already talked about the most sensitive test for pulmonary hypertension, which we've now done on our patient and given her a possible diagnosis of PAH. But what's the most specific test? What has a high positive predictive value? So once the TTE suggests that pulmonary hypertension is present, the results have to be further explored and the diagnosis has to be confirmed with right heart catheterization. That's the most specific test for pulmonary hypertension, right heart catheterization. Invasive measurement of hemodynamics is sort of the gold standard for evaluating pulmonary hypertension because it further defines the etiological group, remember that group one through five we talked about, as well as guiding therapy and contributing to a prognosis, being able to tell the patient, how well are you going to do if you get treatment? Using a small inflatable balloon, the catheter is inserted through a large vein, usually it's in the leg and naturally follows the flow of blood through the right atrium and ventricle until it wedges into the pulmonary artery. So we're actually floating it in the pulmonary artery and sort of fixing it in place. Once appropriately positioned, the pulmonary artery pressure, the right atrial and ventricular pressures, and cardiac output, and the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, remember that's how we distinguish between pre-capillary and post-capillary, the PCWP, all those can be measured. The cardiac index, which is otherwise known as the cardiac output divided by the body surface area, can also be measured, and pulmonary and systemic vascular resistance can be calculated from that. So now I'm going to take a minute, and we're going to go to figure 32.5. So figure 32.5, for those of you at home, is talking about a Swan-Gans catheter placed into the pulmonary artery in right heart catheterization. So the Swan-Gans catheter is actually coming into the pulmonary artery from the right heart and it's coming in the superior vena cava, say from the neck, or from the inferior vena cava, say from the leg, going into the right atrium, going into the right ventricle, going out the tricuspid valve into the pulmonary vascular tree. And then it's going to wedge into that pulmonary artery and measure uh, the different pressures. So the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is actually going to estimate the left atrial pressure. It's sort of an indirect measurement of volume status in this person. And when you have a Swan-Gans catheter, right heart catheterization in there, you actually have a proximal port, which is the port that's going to float in the right atrium, sort of behind the other ports and measure the pressure in the right atrium. You've got a port to the thermistor. You've got a port to the balloon, or what allows you to inflate the balloon, and then you've got a distal port, which is going to be the port that is the furthest along the pulmonary vascular tree. So just a little review. You've got your proximal port, which is going to sit in the right atrium. You've got your port to the thermistor, which is going to sit in the pulmonary vascular tree. You've got your port to the balloon, which is going to inflate the balloon to sort of wedge your catheter into the pulmonary artery. And then you've got the distal port, 
which is going to be at the very tip of the catheter. So going back to our sort of clinical pearls, something that we should know about is a positive vasoreactive study. What the heck is a positive vasoreactive study? It's defined as a decrease of the mean PAP by more than 10 millimeters mercury and below 40 millimeters mercury overall without a decrease in cardiac output. Unique to those patients uh, who respond is the option to treat with a calcium channel blocker. So when women have a positive vasoreactive study, then you can treat them with a calcium channel blocker. So we've got this right heart catheterization done. And if the measurements fit with group 1 PAH, so a PAP of greater than 25 millimeters mercury and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of less than 15, and a PVR of greater than three work units, then a vasodilator challenge is performed. And we find out if that vasoreactive study is positive. This is most commonly done with inhaled nitric oxide. So that's a very potent vasodilator, right? NO. If the patient is deemed a vasodilator responder, then her prognosis is much better than if she was a non-responder. So you can see how this right heart catheterization is already helping us give the patient a prognosis. So let's think about this for a minute in a pregnant patient getting right heart catheterization. If you're going to have to decide to place a PAC in a pregnant patient, it should be made on sort of a case-by-case basis after weighing the potential benefits, again, the risks for the individual and, of course, the fetus. There's common complications of PAC insertion. So these include the occurrence of atrial or ventricular arrhythmias, which could be even fatal perforation of a cardiac chamber, a rupture of a cardiac valve or pulmonary artery are very rare, but these are very catastrophic, right? Particularly to a mother and fetus combination. Complications of catheter uh, use usually include pulmonary artery rupture, pulmonary infarction, thromboembolic events, infection, and data misinterpretation. So getting the wrong data and then giving the patient the wrong prognosis or treatment as a result. So all these things have to be discussed with this pregnant mother before she makes the decision to have the right heart catheterization to confirm her diagnosis. One last clinical pearl before we move on from right heart catheterization. The pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. Can't emphasize this enough. It's very important to know how it's measured. It's measured actually when the balloon is inflated and when it occludes the distal pulmonary artery. So remember that balloon port that we had at the very end of the catheter? When you inflate it, right when it goes out and and wedges against the walls of the vasculature and includes the distal pulmonary artery, that's when the PCWP is taken. Assuming normal anatomy is present, the static column of blood exerts a pressure from the balloon to the left ventricle and thus estimates left ventricular end diastolic pressure. So this is like a surrogate for left ventricular end diastolic volume or preload of the left ventricle. Little pearl there. So let's go back to our patient's right heart catheterization. Say we've counseled her and she's decided to get it. And she has a right heart catheterization to confirm this possible diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. Her right heart catheterization reveals that she's got an MPAP of 45 millimeters mercury. So she meets the definition for PAH. She's got a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 12, so less than 15. She's got cardiac output of 3.5 liters per minute, a cardiac index of 2.1, an SVR of 1,300 dynes, and a PVR of 9.5 work units. She is not responsive to vasodilator challenge, unfortunately. 
Based on these findings, she is diagnosed with group 1 PAH, likely as an effect of what? The dietary supplement that she took a few years earlier. Remember that uh, fact that the dietary suppressant drugs can actually cause drug and toxin-induced group 1 PAH. So now the patient has a diagnosis. What is the pathogenesis of PAH? And let's talk about it specifically in this patient as well. Idiopathic PAH, as well as PAH with an associated condition, have very similar pathophysiology, so you don't have as much to memorize. The latter, or the PAH with associated conditions, involves three main pathways occurring all at the level of the pulmonary artery. It can be endothelial cell proliferation, nitric oxide, or NO, dysregulation, and dysregulated prostacycline synthesis. Okay, let's do those one more time. Endothelial cell proliferation, nitric oxide dysregulation, and dysregulated prostacycline synthesis. Understanding that pathophysiology will elucidate targeted therapies that we're going to use to treat this woman. So patients with PEH have increased endothelial cell growth regulated through the endothelin receptor 1. The results uh, are a thickening of the arterial wall, no surprise, vasoconstriction, right, because you're proliferating the lining inside, and smooth muscle proliferation. The plexiform lesion, hallmark of the disease, big, big alarm bell should go off if you hear plexiform lesion, is commonly found on lung biopsy specimens of patients with PAH and is formed through the endothelin pathway. In most cases, plexiform lesions are located near the origin of the small pulmonary arteries. So where the small pulmonary arteries are coming off are where you're going to see the plexiform lesions. Now let's go on to the nitric oxide pathway. NO is a really potent vasodilator, like we talked about earlier, and it operates primarily through a cyclic guanosine monophosphate, GMP, pathway to relax smooth muscle. Arginine is a required substrate for NO and is profoundly reduced in patients with PAH, leading to unopposed vasoconstriction through the endothelin pathway. So the endothelin pathway is constricting the vessel, and then the NO can't help. Prostacycline promotes vasodilation then through the cyclic adosinine monophosphate AMP, inhibits smooth muscle proliferation, and has some antithrombotic properties to boot. Similar to NO, synthesis of prostacycline is disproportionately reduced in the pulmonary arteries of patients with PAH. This, of course, leads to unregulated effects of endothelin and increased thrombosis within the small arteries. And that, of course, further contributes to increased vascular resistance in the pulmonary tree. So a little clinical pearl about patients with PAH. There is evidence for anticoagulation in patients with either group 1, PAH, or group 4, CTEF, that suggests improved mortality. So anticoagulation is a therapy with some good evidence. The choice of your anticoagulation remains to be warfarin for this indication, though its use in pregnancy, unfortunately, warfarin is uh, strictly contraindicated because of its effects on the fetus. If it's impossible to avoid using it in pregnancy, warfarin should not be given in the first trimester because it's so teratogenic. You also don't want to give it in the weeks leading up to delivery because why? Increased risk of bleeding. So now that we've talked a little bit about the pathophysiology, let's refer to the three pathways again so we know what's happening here. There's the prostacycline pathway where arachidonic acid through COX forms prostaglandins and prostacyclines or PGI2. That then stimulates through prostacycline derivatives, CAMP, 
And CAMP has the ability to do vasodilatation and anti-proliferation. Then you got your nitric oxide pathway. That uses L-arginine and NOS to form L-citrulline and nitric oxide. Nitric oxide then through SGC forms CGMP. CGMP then makes GMP through the PDE5 inhibitor being blocking and PDEs stimulating. Now, GMP is going to also, like CAMP, do vasodilatation and antiproliferation. Lastly, we've got our endothelin pathway. The proendothelin is made through ECE into fragments and endothelin. Then endothelin is going to stimulate the ETA receptor and also the ETB receptor. Now keep in mind, this is blocked by drugs that are endothelin receptor antagonists. And as those ETA and ETB receptors are stimulated, they cause vasoconstriction and proliferation. They decrease downregulation in pH and increase upregulation in pH. So that's a little review of the pathophysiology for you. Now, this will make a lot more sense because when we're talking about targeted therapies for PAH, we've got some solutions. So what are some current therapies for PAH? They're aimed at the individual pathways we just talked about. Endothelin receptor antagonists specifically block the proliferative effects of endothelin and have been shown to improve quality of life and cardiopulmonary function. In the acute setting, NO can be delivered continuously mixed with oxygen via different routes, so nasocannula, mechanical ventilator, a mask, to promote vasodilation. But it's not available as an outpatient therapy, right? So this woman can't be walking around pregnant on that therapy. Fortunately, phosphodiesterase 5 or PDI5, PDI5 inhibitors demonstrate similar effects by increasing endogenous levels of cyclic GMP. So PDEs convert GMP, CGMP to GMP. Prostacycline and its analogs have intravenous, subcutaneous, inhaled, and oral routes of administration. So you've got a lot of options. IV and subcutaneous prostacycline and its analogs have to be given by continuous infusions because they have a really short half-life. And potential for rebound worsening of the disease can occur if you abruptly terminate the medication. So you have to sort of be giving it again and again and again over time. IV prostacycline analogs have been manufactured and can be given through long-term indwelling catheters. So you form a fistula and you infuse it over time. The timing of implementation of these therapies, as well as the choice of therapy, is going to be based on the patient's New York Heart Association, or NYHA, functional class scale. Numerous studies are published and currently ongoing as to whether or not monotherapeutic or upfront multi-therapeutic approach should really be the initial thing that we use. The response to therapy typically is followed mainly by frequent functional assessment rather than repeated hemodynamic measurements. So we're not going to do right heart catheterization frequently again. We're going to ask the woman how she's functioning at home. Now, let's review the World Health Organization functional classification for pulmonary hypertension. So there's going to be classes one through four, and class one is going to be the best, right? Symptoms don't limit physical activity. Normal physical activity in your everyday life is not going to cause undue discomfort. Then we go up to class two, where you have slight limitation of physical activity. The patient's completely comfortable at rest, yet experiences symptoms with ordinary physical activity. Now we go up to class three. That's marked limitation of activity. Again, the patient's comfortable at rest, yet experiences symptoms with minimal physical activity. 
Lastly, we have class four, and that's inability to carry out any physical activity. The patient may experience symptoms even at rest in this case. Discomfort is increased by any kind of moving around, and manifest signs of right heart failure are usually seen. Now, in addition to classifying the patient, we also want to evaluate them for possible home oxygen therapy, diuretics with the goal to keep net even with fluid status, and pulmonary rehabilitation. So these are other options for therapy. All female patients of childbearing potential should be advised to be on contraception if not already pregnant. And the potential risk of pregnancy for a PAH-affected person has to be reviewed for them. We're going to go into more about the risks of pregnancy in a minute. Supervised gradual exercise is being advised for patients with PAH and is demonstrated to be a very safe option if patients are stable. So let's sort of review the initial therapy for patients with PAH-approved drugs. So we're going to go with recommendations based on level of evidence. So recommendation one has level evidence A or B, which is so pretty good evidence. And if you've got functional class two, meaning slight limitation with functional activity, you can use ambrosentin, bosentin, masatentin, bryosiguat, sildenafil, and tadalafil. Now, people in functional class three have very similar options, but you add iloprost inhaled, you add tilprostinol, subcutaneous or inhaled. And once you get on to functional class three, you have the option of IV epoprostinol. Also, with functional class four, epoprostinol IV is on your possible treatment list. Now, going on to lower level of evidence, there's a recommendation 2A with C-level evidence for people using iloprost IV or triprostinol IV with functional class three. Now, the evidence is not as good that functional class 4 folks can use ambrosentin, bosentin, iloprost, masatentin, etc., but it's there. Now, there's evidence B and C and a recommendation 2B to use baraprost or initial combination therapy in functional class 3 or initial combination therapy, multi-therapeutic drugs in class 4. So just a little review. For those of you that are at home, you can use figure 20, uh, figure 32.8 to refer to about possible drugs. So a little clinical pearl aside, of all the available therapies for PAH, endothelin receptor antagonists, and these are the bosentin, masatentin, ambrosentin, are all category X for pregnancy, unfortunately, as is riosiguat. And a recently approved medication for group 1 and 4 disease, that's riosiguat, is also category X. PDE5 inhibitors like sildenafil, tadalafil, and prostacycline and its uh, analogs are all fortunately category B. So the PDE5 inhibitors might be a little bit more go-to for pregnancy. So let's go back to our patient. Now that we know what some potential therapies are, what are we going to choose for her? The patient in our case is questioned and categorized as New York Heart Association Functional Class 3 based on symptoms with minimal activity. And the choice is made to begin IV apoprostinol for her. Fetal monitors show no abnormalities as she begins this, and she's anxious to know the management plan for her pregnancy. No surprise there. So how does pregnancy impact PAH? Now we're getting into the nitty gritty of how pregnancy can be very risky for these patients. To understand how pregnancy affects a patient with PAH, normal cardiovascular changes that occur with pregnancy have to be visited again. And we already talked a little bit about these. 
So the total body volume of fluid increases by as much as eight liters in pregnancy. And plasma volume itself can increase by one and a half liters when the patient is full term. Cardiac output increases a lot by as much as 50% and occurs as a function of that metabolic demand need for both the mom and the developing fetus. Cardiac output is further changed by uh, the change in plasma volume, which increases the preload. And there's also reduced afterload through the vasodilatory effects of estrogen. So you've got increased maternal heart rate and decreased afterload, increased preload, and you've got more volume coming through. So cardiac output is increased through multiple channels. These changes place a lot more stress on the heart and the cardiovascular system, unfortunately, in patients with PAH. They proceed pretty normally in the healthy individual, but in a woman with PAH, the right ventricle is compromised by the increased effort of working against these high pressures. Once the system is taxed further by increasing the overall volume of blood and the need for a higher cardiac output in the pregnant women, the right heart inevitably fails and cardiovascular collapse begins. So that's why this patient became so symptomatic in this instance. Even though she took the appetite suppressant drugs many years ago, this is probably the first time her cardiovascular demand has been high enough that she's become symptomatic. Given all this, women with known PAH are recommended against pregnancy usually, and dual contraception should be employed in all reproductive age women that have PAH known. In those who do become pregnant, like our patient here, a multidisciplinary discussion has to be had with obstetrician, pulmonary hypertension specialist about the risks and benefits of elective abortion and continuation of the pregnancy if it must occur. Now, this poor woman is 32 weeks, so she's already pretty far along in her pregnancy and may or may not want to continue. Women who choose to proceed with pregnancy in the setting of PAH should be referred to a tertiary care center where high-risk obstetrics as well as pulmonary hypertension team is available to them. There's no real consensus on the timing of delivery in these women, unfortunately, and whether or not they can have a vaginal birth or an elective C-section is usually debated. However, typically we counsel them to have an elective cesarean section with concurrent right heart catheterization as early as 34 weeks. Also, a vaginal delivery could be considered between 34 and 37 weeks if the mother and the fetus are stable with the PAH disease. Now, a little clinical pearl. For patients that have unfortunately decompensated right heart failure, management goals are going to focus on the right ventricular support. This can be done with IV inotropes like norepinephrine, dobutamine, or milrinone, which can also be used in pregnant women. Inhaled NO can also be given to add some pulmonary vascular dilatation, effectively offloading some of the strain from the right ventricle. So let's go back to our pregnant patient. So the patient shows good initial response to IV epoprostenol, which we're going to give her. And after multidisciplinary discussion between obstetrics and pulmonology, she's discharged home for weekly follow-up in the outpatient clinic. Of note, she chooses to proceed with her pregnancy. At 34 weeks of pregnancy, she decides to undergo an elective cesarean section. She undergoes an uncomplicated delivery and is monitored in the medical intensive care unit. After an uncomplicated hospital course, she and her child are discharged home with follow-up in the pulmonary hypertension clinic in one week. So this story fortunately had a happy ending, but there are many pulmonary hypertension pregnancies that don't go as well. Let's go to some summary with Beyond the Pearls, okay? So some important points and some extras from us. 
Large shifts in volume status are not well tolerated in PAH. Delivery in pregnancy is one of these. Volume management should be conservative and you want small boluses if you're going to resuscitate the patient or if you need to and low dose drips for diuresis. So if you're going to diurese the patient, you want to do it slowly. If you're going to add volume, you want to do it slowly. Patients without contraindications should be referred for lung transportation if they're having NYH class 4 disease despite maximal medical therapy. In other words, if we've maxed out all the different antitherapeutics and the patient is still unable to do any physical activity, lung transplantation is considered. IV epoprostenol, which we started our patient on in this case, while really effective, has really significant side effects, most notably diarrhea, nausea, jaw pain, flushing, and headache. These symptoms fortunately tend to sort of minimize over time the more you use the medication. And last beyond the pearl, inhaled and oral prostacyclates. So inhaled are iloprost, triprostanil, and oral triprostanil. These are analogs, and also the prostacycline receptive agonists with celexapeg are available, thus negating the need for indwelling IV catheters while still achieving therapeutic effects comparable to the EV epoprostenol in patients with class 3 disease. However, for more advanced patients that have class 4 disease, systemic prostacycline still sort of remains the drug of choice. So if you see someone that's on IV epoprostenol, you probably want to consider that perhaps they have more advanced disease or weren't a candidate somehow for these alternatives. So let's do a little summary of our case here. We met this 29-year-old woman at 32 weeks gestation who presented with worsening shortness of breath. Our physical exam revealed some suspicious cardiac signs, a jugular venous distension, a loud P2 with three out of six holosystonic murmur, lungs that were clear so we weren't suspecting the shortness of breath was due to a primary lung disease, and she had bilateral pitting lower extremity edema. We were already suspecting right heart failure. Her TTE then showed severe right ventricular dilation with pulmonary artery systolic pressure estimated at 65 millimeters mercury. Then we had a high, high suspicion of pulmonary artery hypertension. We diagnosed her with the specific test and she had WHO group 1 PAH on right heart catheterization. Based on her symptoms and her NYHA functional class, which was fortunately good, the patient was started on IV epoprostenol, and then she had an elective cesarean delivery to deliver her baby at 34 weeks. She did well, and we managed her excellently. That concludes this chapter from Beyond the Pearls. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.